Welcome back into the Fear of God's hallowed corporate offices after business hours. Uh, my coworker Reed is running a little late, as you may know if you listened last week. He had some difficult problems that may keep him from this shift tonight. Shift that is. Um, he and I are scheduled to be convening some of our work crews to help us get through the night. You, yes. You, you are special. You get to be a part of all the crews working tonight. If you are unsure how you ended up here, just, you know, go check out thefogpod.com. Surprise! For basically anything you want to know about this here podcast. Well, what do you know, Reed? You're here. You got some pepto in hand. You made it back to the good old night shift here at the fear of God. Indeed. My exploring and explaining ratio was way off last week. So a lot was off last week. Are you, are you you good? You ready to kind of grab a broom or mop or whatever people clean things with? Yeah. Maybe I might snooze for a little while first though. No. Okay. So not (laughs) fully over the bug. Okay. How, how are you? I mean, like, what are we going to do about the shift? Well, good news is is that um, Ian and Matt Ruff and Blake are going to handle the patron segment for us this week. So <sighs> they're covering like three stories. So oh, I just who show is this after all? <laughs> just uh, taking over up in these parts. Uh, yeah, I bet they're three for real. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They're covering Jerusalem's Lot, Strawberry Spring, and One for the Road. That's a good episode of Lost. One for the Road. Oh, it is one. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That, that's, usually, can... that's usually the part where you catch my joke, which is it's actually two for the road in Lost. But um, I didn't remember the episode, man. Yeah, man, you you really aren't doing great, I are you? You're really I'm still, not. No, still trying just, to shake off this bug. I you're am. Gonna need, no, it's two for... I mean, with them doing what they're doing, you're going to need one for the road with all that. You know, is that so? That one is just for patrons. That's you just for clearly that's just can for, barely no. stand upright. I I need a brain break. Yeah, you think you would be able, <laughs> after break, after, yeah. yeah after that? You think you tackle gray matter for me is that a euphemism i mean you take it how you want it i can't control you in order (laughs) euphemism or not i'm gonna call vera jackson and dave and we will handle it (laughs) i appreciate that that junk is heavy and gross and i am not up for it (laughs) but you just keep on going okay well you know as it's written here there is nothing to it but to do it my friend you get some more rest you prop your feet up reed you know okay. get some ginger ale okay ginger Ooh. ale not mountain dew ginger ale do, will help settle the tum tum a bit get some yeah, yeah. all right I don't know if you've ever heard if you've ever heard the acronym brat it's bananas yes bananas rice, and rats and applesauce what? and turds oh, sorry. <laughs> did you say applesauce and turds 
<laughs> Sorry. You go, you go retrograde me back. I'm going to suddenly, like, this Pepto ain't strong enough. Like, oh my God. Toast. Raw, toast. No, raw I said business. toast. You heard turds because you're struggling. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yes. okay. Listen, you just get some of the <laughs> the brat, and I will check okay. on you at the break. Okay. All right. All right. I promise I'll soldier up after that. That's fine. Okay. Okay. I will see you then. Okay. Welcome back into another night shift. Shift. Working this night shift. Is Quarterly Queen, Vera Gowdy, legal counsel, Dave Courtney, an all-around awesome individual, Jackson Harper. Guys, be sure to, um, you know, clock in, get your, uh, you know, get ready for your your shift. And uh, for this particular segment, we are going to be discussing Gray Matter, one of the short stories, of course, from Night Shift. So, you know, I, I know... I, I have no clue where this segment is going to fall in the run of uh, the entirety of Night Shift. So we may reference things that listeners haven't heard yet. We may reference things that uh, uh, are are have already been several weeks past. Um, but I'm curious from you guys, had any of you read this short story collection at all? No. No? Mm-mm. Dave? Nope. Vera? I, I had read a story from the collection, but not the collection itself before. Had you read a story for this run of episodes or you'd read before, it previously? Prior to this run of episodes, I had read <laughs> Children of the Corn. Okay. But, but then I then I reread certain ones and read new ones. You know, uh, uh, I hear there's going to be a Children of the Corn segment at some point during Night Shift. So, so this tells me <laughs> we are just... Uh, we might be waiting on a new Children of the Corn movie to drop. See, this is what's funny. This is what's really weird about these night shift segments, you guys, is like, I feel totally dislodged from reality. <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea when this is going to air, what we're re- what reference points are going to be uh, available Time to is us. an abstract concept. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a face, a face on, the water. on the water. Yes. Well, there it is. There it is. Thank you, Cy. So uh, in short, um, Gray Matter... Uh, which I, I was utterly unfamiliar with, um, is a group of old farts at the at the local general store. As like King is like king of old farts <laughs> at a general store. Like that is such a <laughs> beloved trope for him. Uh, young young man wanders in. Uh, there's a storm going on. He says, "You know, Daddy's got problems." Uh, uh, and, and a couple of the old farts go to check on Daddy, and turns out Daddy is. Daddy's got problems. Daddy's got problems. Like there's problems. And then there's whatever it is. Daddy's got <laughs> um, now. I have had any of y'all seen any of the creep show stuff on shutter. Like, Sorry, like any previous of- to this. Yeah. No, me neither. No. I, did, I watched this one for this, but I didn't watch any of the other ones. <laughs> what did you think Jackson of this one? Um, I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like this story part of what makes it a pretty good story. I don't say it's a great story. It's a pretty good story. Sure. Uh, is, is the way it's written and sort of the sort of interior life of the narrator. And I feel like the shorts or the, the TV adaptation, it just takes, this is what happens in the story and just shows you that but it doesn't have any of the sort of uh, character stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like every adaptation to be fair. 
well, not kind of everyone. What's but this one? Well, see, what I think is a little interesting is. So I had I knew Shudder had done this run of creep show, but had had not watched any of it. And so I have no idea what we're getting into when I turn this on. You know, read the read the prose version first. Um, and then uh last night watched the filmed version, the adaptation version. And so I turn it on, and then it's like Tobin Bell. Oh, okay. Yeah. Adrian Barbeau. Oh, okay. Giancarlo Esposito. Okay. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm down to party. Let's do this. And I, I actually, I thought the, the prose version is to your, I think the word you use Jackson pretty good, you know, or, or mm -hmm. good. Um, I kind of dug the, the adaptation, um, because what I think sometimes happens with these adaptations because they gen uh, generally are largely from longer works um you lose so much of that interior life that all you're left with is the fantastical weirdness mm -hmm. whereas in this sort of scenario there's pretty minimal interior life that can be you know uh, uh taken from one medium to the next and so all you're given is just while it may seem pedantic uh a to b to c storytelling I kind of appreciate it's it's in and out kind of style. Um, well, it definitely gets in and out. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, did you have any hot takes on either the prose or the, uh, the adaptation? Um, no, I appreciated actually the, <laughs> the one we're not covering the, the second. Uh, I also like the second one better. Yeah. I, um, but um i don't know it's interesting because the 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 the, um, the series uh the show one it kind of takes a different approach with the kid than the book yeah. does. so oh, yeah. i was wrestling with uh which one i appreciated more because they they kind of have a different effect one kind of implicates the kid and the other one kind of has the whole cast of characters aware of what's going on before they actually arrive at the house you know, mm -hmm. kind of has a different, uh, um, just gives it a little bit of a different nuance to the story. Does this happen to y'all with these sometimes where you watch the adaptation and you sense a change, but you're like, or did I just not understand what I was reading in the book? Yeah. Yeah. Almost yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when now I, I was savvy enough to be like oh that is definitely a swerve when in the adaptation uh the kid uh to borrow your word dave implicate is implicated in and is abetting daddy uh and and his insatiable insatiability there um i will say and 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 we can maybe use this as an on-ramp to that ain't right uh what kind of works in the prose version which is at the end when whoever it is, I don't know if they're doing it mentally or they get back to the general store and are doing it actually like that you see in the adaptation when they're doing the calculations of, you know, the, the, the splitting and, and how long it's going to take uh -huh. until the world ends. I didn't feel like that really translated at all in the adaptation version. It was very kind of, for me, at least it felt very tacked on very like, wait, I thought it was a lot more um, ambiguous in the prose version as opposed to a much more definitive, like the world is definitely going to end sure. in the adaptation version. Yeah, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's how I, I was like, oh, 
I, I like the ambiguous ending better, mm-hmm. um, but I like the twist with the boy better in yeah. the adaptation. Huh. Were you saying something, Dave? Yeah, I was just going to say like the the ending and the prose kind of it's um leaves it very open-ended they're they're still sitting there (laughs) waiting for one of the two to come back which one who knows and even at the time of the whoever the narrator is in the in the um the prose version it's like well we're still sitting here waiting (laughs) i'm not even sure how long they've been waiting but yeah yeah i i don't know i i felt this on graveyard shift uh i i was on a segment for the film and the short graveyard shift and actually and you'll, you'll hear this when it airs if it hasn't already um that i'm one of the only real advocates for the film graveyard shift even though it's not a good movie i'm not defending it as a good movie <laughs> but it was kind of a fun romp to me it was like ah, yeah it's a 1990 or 1991, just kind of lowish budget uh, uh, horror flick that you might have seen on the USA channel uh, with um, <laughs> Brad Dorif just chewing scenery. I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> otherwise it's kind of dumb. But I kind of appreciate sometimes in the shorter works what might could be construed and or critiqued as simplicity. Uh, what I would just say is directness, efficiency of storytelling. It's like, yeah. And in, in the in the adaptation of this kid comes into a diner, uh, alerts to problems. People go check out problems. Turns out kid is actually an agent of the problem itself. And everybody, all hell breaks loose, uh, quite literally. Um, this is going to be the part of the segment where we talk about things that aren't just wrong, but I wish might be said. That ain't right. sure as hell ain't right i'm gonna walk us into that ain't right with a real life that ain't right and then we can do (laughs) two rounds did you drink expired beer is that (laughs) no but uh perhaps i'll show i probably won't show these in the uh on the fog instagram so i'll just use my best uh descriptive skills to talk about them but i just put in our zoom chat here two photos so i watched this uh late last night about 11 o'clock after i watched the last of us finale i was like okay cool now i'm gonna watch this 20 minute you know gray matter short my wife's asleep in my room about four feet from the foot of the bed is a dresser upon the top of which is the television now on both sides of this dresser on the right is a door to the bathroom on the left is a door to the hallway. Down the hallway live the Rouse family children. I have um, a question. Why yes. would you watch something scary with both of those doors open? You psycho. I wasn't. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. You're you're foreshadowing where the story is going. Um, I wasn't totally conscious of the fact that it that that was the case. Uh, Last of Us is, despite its. Um, despite its kind of subject matter is a bit more poetic than, than horrific. And so it didn't really prompt (laughs) me to mind my surroundings. 
So uh, you'll also notice, uh, so so what I've shared with uh, uh, our guests here is two photos. One is from me sitting in the bed, staring straight away. So it's uh, the image is the TV with doors on the left and right side. The next is the exact same image, but with the left door, um, an outline that I drew in red. Because when old Tobin Bell and when old Jigsaw and Moff Gideon decide to go investigate daddy's house, my six-year-old shuffle steps very cautiously <laughs> into the room, which means out of the darkness, very slowly <laughs> emerges this little body. And it did not go well for either of us in that moment. I'm trying not to wake up anybody. I'm trying not to shout profanities. I'm trying not to discipline my child because she just needs something, you know, <laughs> but it was not, not a pleasant moment. And absolutely. Hey, that ain't right. Right. Um, yeah, it was rough. If you've ever, it, my, my oldest kid, same, same, you can look at these same photos, uh, uh, Jackson, Vera, Dave. And when I watched midnight mass, it was the same thing. And it was the, it was the scene in like episode six or seven when crazy town is happening. And it wasn't a shuffle step that time. It was at that time, a 13 year old running into the room straight at me. Because yeah. something was happening downstairs and it, it definitely, <laughs> you know, poop club was a thing. Um, let's do this. Dave, I want you to pick a that ain't right from either the pros or the show. And we'll kind of we'll kind of round robin this a little bit. Uh, maybe there's enough to go twice, but we'll see. Yeah, well, mine's kind of uh, from both, but um, oh, that's fine. Yeah, know, from 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 the pros, the line that says the boy said. He smelt the can. There was a little gray dribble around the top. And in the in the uh, adaptation, picks up the can, smells the can. And uh, I'm like, why? Why are you picking up this thing, covered in slime, and smelling it? I don't understand. This is not the decision I would make. Just yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of questionable decisions that get made in this very <laughs> very short text. Jackson, what's a what's a that ain't right for you? Um, so it's from the story. There's this one part where uh, it talks about he turned on the lights and like, or the the kid turns on the lights and his dad is completely wrapped in a yeah, blanket, oh, like you can't see anything. Yeah. And then a hand reaches out, but then it says but it wasn't a hand. It was something else. I'd love Stephen King does this really well. He always like puts this image in your mind that you can't, quite, you can't quite make clear, but it's just a description and it's very vague. Like it's, it's like an it where uh, the Pennywise turns into a spider, but it's, but it wasn't really a spider. That was just the closest thing that their mind could come to understanding what it was. Yeah. And so I love. Yeah, it allows your imagination to fill in the gaps with whatever is exactly. the creepiest thing to you. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of a hand that isn't a hand—it's just a gray lump, and you can just you can fill in your yeah, you fill in the gaps however you want. So yeah, that's mine. Barry, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go adaptation. The dead bodies. Blah. Oh, like yeah. the the. <laughs> the kids or whatever they are like the yeah the, the the missing people yeah i mean right. i thought you know like 
maybe I'm just feeling generous, but I kind of dug the, the adaptation for what it was. I, I thought it was pretty well staged pretty well. I mean, the, the effects were solid, um, yeah. mm-hmm. all things considered. And I mean, you don't get those three actors and not get something decent from them from a performance standpoint. Yeah. Um, I've got a few from the pros, but it's more just lines, uh, a little bit like what you were suggesting, Jackson. One is, uh, talking about the young man whose father is Richie coming into the general store. Like this, just like, who thinks of this, this turn of phrase, Richie's kid came in and he looked like he kissed the wrong end of a baby. (laughs) (laughs) He looked like he had kissed the wrong end of a baby. That's, that's a, that's a thing that. Stephen King wrote Um, this one just was quite disgusting. And I think it's, so it's in the prose. It's when the two gentlemen, or I think I actually think it's three in the text uh, have gone to the house and they're trying to figure out what's going on with Richie and Richie calls from the other side of the door. Where's Timmy? Where's my boy? And then the narrator says, I almost ran right then. That voice wasn't human at all. It was queer and low and bubbly, like someone talking through a mouthful of suet, S-U-E-T. And I went and looked up what suet is, which just amplifies the, that ain't right of this. So remember, it says that voice wasn't human at all. It was low and bubbly, like someone talking through a mouthful of suet. Suet, friends and listeners, is the hard white fat on the kidneys and loins of cattle, sheep, and other animals used to make foods, including puddings, pastry, and mincemeat. That's specific. <laughs> ain't right. And it's quite specific. Yes. <laughs> um, anyone got another that ain't right that you would like to name check here? I've got a couple from oh. the, from the adaptation. Yeah, Dave. I'll, uh, I'll play off yours and, uh, add another line um yeah the one where it says the kid said it must have been the beer you know how you can get a bad can every now again flat or smelly or green as the pea stains in an irish <laughs> man's underwear oh. <laughs> <laughs> i love just picturing an author just sitting there workshopping these these lines why you know? specifically irish man <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, this is green yeah yeah (laughs) smelly Uh, Vera Jackson any other that ain't rights you want to Um, just in general the just that ain't right of Timmy being from an abusive home is Mm. sad way to make it real yep you're welcome Vera yeah, it's all good. Jackson, any any fantastical that ain't rights (laughs) we gotta talk about we gotta talk about the dead cat (laughs) Does that happen in the Where, in the adaptation? Though? Yeah, it's, no, I don't know about that. I don't. Yeah, it does. Happen yeah, it does. It's in both. Yeah, but I'm specifically thinking of because I watched the adaptation, but it was like a week or two ago, and I just listened to the audio on my okay. Okay. long commute home from work, so the story is more fresh in my mind. Uh, but yeah, yeah he, uh, the kid sees his dad go to the wall and take a panel off and pull out a dead, <laughs> putrefying cat covered in white things which i love that he says like little white things instead of maggots it somehow sure. makes it even grosser yeah. <laughs> and then the richie just eats the whole thing just scarfs it down uh, 
But, I like how I, the I, I like how the book puts <laughs> a dead cat dot 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 fill in those little blanks there, and then his dad ate it. <laughs> so matter of fact, <laughs> yeah. Um, another one that I have that's not such a downer is piggybacking off of Dave's first one. The smells that was my definite top one. The description and even the visuals of how things look like they smelled bad. But mm. on top of that, the temperature of everything because mm. he needs it to be warm, and then the mm-hmm. like. You just think of those hot garbage smells in heat. And it's so much worse. <laughs> yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah. I am always heating impressed. up. Yeah. No, go ahead. He's heating up the beer too. Yeah. Yeah. What a monster. That's gotta have, that's gotta have a funky <laughs> that's smell. That's the worst. <laughs> so I, I got kind of confused in the text. Uh, again, this just happens sometimes, but like, it took me a second to realize that the beer was the ground zero for the, the problem. The, the adaptation is much clearer, you know, that that's kind of what's going on. But, but by the time that kind of coalesces uh, or congeals as the no. <laughs> story may suggest, it's, pr- it's pretty nasty. Um, uh, uh, Danny writes from the, the adaptation daddy in the chair with the blanket. Uh, I wrote goopy, glorpy, grody. Um, yes, Vera, the glorpy bodies of the dead people. I mean, just absorbing Tobin Bell into him was a thing. The creature design is cool. Like, yeah, how they made that effect work and whatever was well done. Yes. And, and I don't know if y'all noticed this is directed by Greg Nicotero, who had a big hand in Walking Dead amongst, uh, oh, okay, uh, uh, quite the history there. Um, Okay, well, that has been the part of the segment where we talk about things that aren't just wrong, but which might be said. That ain't right. That sure as hell ain't right. You know, I don't want to steer to, I mean, partly just for time, but it can't be ignored, I think, that this little short, as much of King's work probably was circa this era, it's just a really big fat metaphor for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that actually kind of impresses me. Um, just the willingness to be so kind of now I didn't do my research to know the, how this historically aligns with where he was in his, um, you know, kind of personal battles. Uh, but so, so there's a world where someone could say, Oh, well, it's more subconscious. <laughs> Although I'd say, as it's written and as it's presented, even in the adaptation, it's, it's very uh, front and center, but I, I just find that really fascinating. The ability to do something like that, that, you know, for, for, as Bain would say, the uninitiated uh, people who aren't really into the horror thing, all they're going to see is, Oh, this is just really gross and big, nasty monster. But this is really an authorial voice trying to exorcise his own, demons as it were and i i find that just kind of really fascinating i don't know if anybody's got any thoughts on that or any other spinoff thematic notions that they want to talk about well i was i was trying to figure out um okay so there's a line where the boy says he said he could still see his dad henry answered but he he said it was like he was 
buried in gray jelly and it was all kind of mashed together. He said his clothes were um, sticking in and out of his skin like they were melted to his body. Obviously, this is like describing, you know, something that uh, you can't like you can't quite describe and that's something this boy is experiencing and trying to communicate to the others. Um, in fact, there's even a line that says a person doesn't hardly want to believe such things. And yet there's still strange things in the world, um, which is used to kind of like describe what the boy is trying to get across and mm -hmm. they're having a hard time believing. Right. But um, if you take the beginning and the end, like the beginning, it's almost like this kind of like weird tears kind of environment that Henry's night owl, where it's like it describes it as a place for us old duffers on social security to get together and talk about who's died lately and how the world's going to hell. And then you get to the end and it's literally like, well, this is the end. So I'm trying to connect the, <laughs> the clear metaphor for alcoholism, what the boy's dealing with his dad to this larger picture. Um, I was a little bit lost on that yeah. piece of the puzzle. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but I was just trying to put those two pieces together. As in the, the sort of apocalyptic nature or just the. Yeah. Cause they didn't quite seem uh, like they weren't quite seeming to go together. Exactly. Yeah. Like one, one mm -hmm. was that meta personal metaphor, like between the, the boy and his dad and he's dealing with his dad's alcoholism. And then the other is about this group of people that, I mean, you take the beginning and the end of the story. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Well, they're sitting around talking about how the world's going to hell, and then, well, there it does. So that's one of those moments where you got to wonder if it's like, if it's like, you know, the 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 writing is clicking along, and then you get to the end, you're like, okay, how am I going to end this? Okay, fine, it just <laughs> takes over the world, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's just have someone tabulate how quickly this is going to happen. But um, Jackson Vera, any any sort of thoughts, responses, new ideas? I just loved, liked the sense of um, community around Timmy. Like mm. he comes into the, in the um, pros, it's the general store in the adaptation. It's like the diner thing, right? Yeah. But um, how the grownups, the other grownups that aren't his dad, like feed him and listen to his story and, you know, send people to go and talk to his dad and, you know, hopefully get him to, I I don't know get some sense into him or whatever, whatever it is they plan on doing when they talk to him. But I really liked that in the midst of, of the story where I definitely did see the alcoholism um, metaphor that there are other grownups that were there to help. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, not to, for what is ostensibly a relatively uh, light uh, ho little horror story, not to, dive it too deep i mean we've had you know in in family history and even uh, touching current era of just awareness of of folks close to us dealing with uh very real alcoholism issues and and i do think the the metaphor works i mean it's a little now this is me thinking out loud in the you know kind of discovering this idea in the moment does the does the adaptation undercut the power of the metaphor? 
right? Because the kids abetting it at the end, whereas the the pros is clearly, correct me if I'm wrong, that's not a part of it. You know, he he's not trying to facilitate this and is, is in fact quite afraid of, you know, what's happening. I, I think that the in the adaptation, just maybe the intentions of the boy are a little bit different as opposed to finding safe haven with his community as opposed to his home. He's just unwilling to give up on his dad, even though he's in the midst of this addiction. Yeah. But is the case in the adaptation that he has? It's not he's at just the expense of his community. Right. I mean, he's sending them. That, yeah. that's, that was the, that was my takeaway yeah, yeah. was I came here as a yeah, yeah. debate to, to lure you out. Um, yeah, it's pretty jacked up. Um, that, that's, that's kind of a gray matter there. I was expecting a story about brains and <laughs> got, got nothing, of, got nothing of the sort. Okay. That has been gray matter. Uh, Vera, Dave Jackson, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, uh, not just your time in these this recording session, but thank you for your willingness to read and uh, uh, imbibe this uh, little adaptation here. And um, everyone, I, I promised my neighbor I would bring him a six pack. So Jackson, Dave, Vera, <laughs> once more, thank you for your hard work this this night shift. Don't forget to clock out. Okay, no overtime around here. And listeners, the expiry date on that beer though. Do it. Do it. <laughs> that expiry date i've never actually heard someone say that out loud but there it is <laughs> be sure to stick around listeners for the next night shift that ain't right the story no you you are still laying on the couch up in here? Okay, fine, fine. I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. No, I'm I mean, up. if I'm you up. need it, if you need it, little lackey. I'm here. I'm you here. can do I'm, it. I have I've covered s- your I have, shift. I have it done my sit-up. It is only fair, you know. Mm-hmm. You can cover mine. It's. A, <laughs> I would say it's a war zone in there and point to your stomach, but this is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> an audio-based medium. So it is a war zone out there. Okay. Oh Elsewhere. yeah, that's right. That's right. Battleground is up next. Okay. All right. I, yeah, I got it. I got it. Either your stomach or otherwise, you got reinforcements. Yeah, yeah. That's that's super cute. I actually do. Um, Steve and uh, Matt Murray are gonna stop by and help me with Battleground. So uh, yeah. okay. Well, good. Yeah. Good. They can. You know, they're good. They're good folk. Um, <laughs> you will need them. I feel like based on yeah. your current uh, state. Um, because mm-hmm. battlegrounds that is that is one toy story where i do not want to see a sequel and I do <laughs> like the toy story sequels <laughs> that's right that's right i agree i agree to infinity and beyond i agree all right let me let me go let me go handle this business i'll be back Hello, everybody, and welcome to another shift of the night, another night shift. Your guards on duty tonight. I don't know if we're going to use that phrase for every segment or not. I do. Nathan and I didn't talk about it, uh, but I'm here with some friends of the fog. Uh, we have not only myself, I'm your host, 
Reed Lackey, but we are also privileged for this very special installment of a really, really cool story to be joined by our newly inducted gory gamer, Matt Murray. How are you, Matt? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. Cool. Good. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. And not only do we have Matt here, but we also have the one, the only continuity guru himself, Steve Beckley. Steve, how you doing, man? Doing very good. Happy to be here, Reed. Cool. I am excited to enter the battleground. So we're just going to dive right into it. Um, on these segments, you know, we focus on one or, or a couple, depending uh, of the stories from Night Shift. Battleground was, like many of the stories in this, uh, was previously published in Cavalier Magazine. Uh, I believe it was 1972 for this one, and then later collected in uh, Night Shift as a collection, which was released in 1978. Um, it was then adapted uh, in the, I believe, late 90s. Uh, I need to actually look that up. I should have I kept it up on IMDb. Um, as part of a miniseries that was released called Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, aired on, I want to say, TNT. That's right. And it, it adapted uh, eight short stories of Stephen King's. They weren't all from... Um, Night Shift, and in fact, Nightmares and Dreamscapes is a different short story collection by Stephen King, and this was just kind of a mishmash of all these different, um, you know, di directors and actors. And Battleground was actually the premiere of those. So we're going to be so this conversation that you are listening to right now, uh, Matt and Steve and I are going to be diving not only into the particulars of the story, but also touching on that adaptation as well. Which, if you are hunting it down. Uh, I think all of the episodes of Nightmares and Dreamscapes are pretty readily available on YouTube. There's several uh, uploads that they've done. Uh, I don't know if it's available officially to streaming somewhere, but they're, they're all on YouTube, including Battleground. Um, so, uh, Steve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you first. Had you read this story before? Uh, was this your first time diving into it? And had you seen that miniseries before? I had not uh, read or seen it before, so it was the first time for me. Yeah, what'd you think? Yeah, I was... Uh enthralled it was pretty exciting it was it was pretty much uh, an action movie kind of thing um uh -huh. and it's, yeah pretty pretty straightforward um but i enjoyed it nice nice now matt i am curious to hear your thoughts because you if memory serves are you are a military vet as i if my memory serves me correctly and and so what did you take uh of of battleground had you read the story before any exposure to it and what'd you think about it uh yeah i've, I've read uh, night shift uh, a few years back um i don't remember the story that much necessarily uh but uh yeah it was it was nice to revisit uh it was fun fun little story it's pretty straightforward mm -hmm. um i mean it's funny if, if you didn't know that king wrote it i don't know if you could definitely uh <laughs> pinpoint that he was the author it just seems not necessarily his style but uh right uh, but yeah it's, it's a fun concept um kind of made me nostalgic for uh uh, some of the childhood movies I watched, Small Soldiers, uh, Indian yeah. in the Cover, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, I immediately thought of Small Soldiers too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Those vibes are all yeah. over it, to be sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's What's interesting is the adaptation from Night Shift was directed by the one and only Brian Henson, who is Jim Henson's mm. son and um you know director of the muppet christmas carol of all things um and then it was also adapted the teleplay was adapted by richard christian matheson who is richard matheson's son who was oh. a legendary 
suspense, horror, sci-fi writer, and a direct inspiration of Stephen King's, as King has cited many, many times. Um, and the adaptation stars William Hurt. Uh, before I share my thoughts on it, I'm, I'm remiss. We haven't even said what this crazy story is about. So um, the primary character, uh, Renshaw, is a hitman. And uh, we are informed in fairly quick succession that he has recently completed a hit. And uh, shortly thereafter, after he arrives home, presumably to relax and unwind in whatever ways hitmen do, um, he receives a package. And that package contains a lot of toy army soldiers, the little green figures that you're used to seeing when you're growing up, maybe collected or had yourself. It, it contains uh, an entire collection of these army soldiers, complete with an arsenal of helicopters and uh, guns and, and rocket launchers and everything. But then pretty quickly after he opens the package, he realizes they are fully alive. And not only are they fully alive, they are very immediately intent on taking him out and waging war. So the the battleground of the title is actually his apartment as he's trying desperately to stop all of these minuscule little toy soldiers from killing him. So um, I'll be candid that I like this story. like it a lot, actually. I think it's fun. It's swift. Uh, Matt, I think I, I really like your note. If you didn't know it was King, I don't know that you'd guess it was King. It's not terribly horrific. Um, it has a little bit of his you know, style. The word apotheosis never shows up. So, I mean, there's no hidden indicators that Stephen King had anything to do with this. Um, but I love this adaptation. So my affection for the story is kind of, you know, mid-tier, maybe upper mid-tier. But I loved revisiting this hour of television. And, and for people who don't know, it's not a feature adaptation. It's literally just like, you know, 50 some odd minutes long. No dialogue at all, except for uh, a little bit of intercom overheard in the airport when William Hurt, who stars in it, uh, gets back from, from his hit. Um, so no dialogue at all. Pure action, propulsive pace. So I, I just, I actually, I read the story and I was like, yeah, that was fun. I liked that. But then saw this adaptation. I was like, holy cow, I, this is, this is great. <laughs> this is super fun. Uh, I don't know if you, either of you it's guys. It's extremely, uh, extremely faithful to the story too. I mean, almost beat by beat. It, uh, oh, yeah. it follows the story pretty closely. I thought that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. Well, it did have it did have a longer ending on it. The whole elevator shaft thing wasn't yeah. in the story. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that whole elevator shaft thing, man. That little that little commando dude, <laughs> the, little, the, the little one like, last uh, left alive. Yeah. That followed exactly. Yeah. yeah, little little pocket Rambo. I call him. He's he's just yeah. like <laughs> he is. He is so intense. Um, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we get a little bit of the a uh, little bit more of the didactic specifics out of the way? Uh, so, so uh, particularly in this kind of segment, uh, now we have reached the part of the show where we discuss things that are not just wrong, but it might be said that ain't right. That sure as hell ain't right. So that ain't right for the old battleground. Specifically, probably. I mean, welcome to share thoughts from. That ain't rights of the story itself, um, but probably primarily focusing on this adaptation of Battleground. Um, so, Matt, I'm going to start with you. What is, if you had to pick your your one, what's your, for Battleground, what is your peak that ain't right? Yeah, I think uh, what stuck out to me the most, because none, none of it is extremely horrific, but uh, sure, sure. in the, in the, the, the screen adaptation, 
the commando at one point uh, cuts his Achilles tendon, it looks like. And uh, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was like, yeah, um, you know, you think these things can't really hurt you and, and they couldn't be a challenge, but then you think of something like that. And, and that's pretty horrific to think about. So, man, Stephen King adaptations <laughs> love to cut an Achilles tendon. Yeah, I'm right. thinking, of, thinking of that guy from Pet Cemetery. I'm like, Lord, yeah. Lord mercy. That's it, a, was, that's it was the little boy, right? It was Gage. That's right. Yeah. Gage <laughs> yeah. cut, cut uh, Judd Crandall's Achilles tendon. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so gruesome. That is absolutely ain't right. Steve, what you got for us? What ain't right? Well, I think uh, there was a whole sequence that uh, is similar to another story in the same book where he goes out in the ledge and has to crawl around yeah. the building <laughs> yes yes indeed indeed he did some yeah he, a few times he almost lost his balance and all of that's that's uh that's suspenseful there it's he's, terrifying man yeah and he's 40 I'm, stories up in this one well that was the crazy thing about it is i was like i was trying to think you know i mean i haven't been a hitman for for some time but um it's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking i was like you know if i was ever in that situation where i had to be out on the ledge and crawling out man i i don't i might I might just be like, okay, just, just take me. I'm done. And I don't like, yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of heights, but nor am I really good with them. You know, it's, it's not as if I'm one of those like daredevils who's just like, oh, I like to sit at the top of the space needle in, in Seattle. And it's like, no, 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 I, <laughs> that's, that's not my speed. So I'm with you when all of those, when every gust of wind and, and William Hurt is like flailing his arm, like totally, like, I don't even know how he made it back <laughs> balance yeah. wise. I'm just like, oh. yeah. Forget it. And didn't, forget didn't the helicopter come out after him? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Tried to take a couple slices out. And speaking of slices, so my that ain't right. I know, like, I get it. These days, I have become, and I, I, I do blame the pandemic. Uh, I'm not trying to be, you know, snide or dismissive when I say this, but I have become a, a sanitizer, uh, a, a bit, maybe not obsessive, but uh, I sanitize my hands a lot. <laughs> so mm. I do wash them a lot, but but I sanitize my hands a lot. It's a, it's a habit I developed through the course of the last two or three years. So uh, when he's got these, you know, these things come after him and they're, they're chopping into his hand and they're chopping into his face and he's got these big deep cuts and these gashes. And I was and, and like the most uncomfortable moment for me in this entire piece was when he's like pouring the alcohol on oh. those cuts and when he has to pour, you know pour it into the rag and then shove it against his scar now you know cut open face i was like oh my god like cuz i've <laughs> i've had a little tiny cut on my hand or something and i just unthinking will sanitize my hand and i'm like oh god it just starts screaming at me this yeah. little tiny cut that i didn't even realize was there and i was thinking oh man him pouring those into open bloody wounds i was like oh my god that ain't right <laughs> He's he's a real like cleanliness minded man. You can tell that's from, true from the adaptation how clean that apartment was. Spotless. That's true. That's a pretty so. slick apartment. That's right. It's kind of that man's got a like dude. Evidently, the assassination business is lucrative. That man's got a like a little pool bath sitting there right in his apartment. That's yeah, just, he's got a pool that's like half inside, half outside, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, this guy is well to do. Plus, I think. He's on the top floor. Didn't he push the button all the way to go up to 40 yeah, yeah. On the, mm-hmm. in the adaptation? So he's so he's all the way up. Um, I, I don't know if any of you had anything else. I, I, I did have just one sort of honorable mention for, you know, play taps for old toy commandos death. Like that was <laughs> that, like that was a pretty, pretty vicious when he's like slowly edging him towards the elevator doors yeah 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 because that boy that commando i love that shot 
this is not really for that ain't right, but I love that shot where he's in the elevator shaft and he first sees that little commando guy and that commando gives him that like rebel <laughs> yell, like, yeah, right. it's on. I'm coming for you. Mother effort. Like it's just, it's, <laughs> it's a really energizing kind of, kind of thing. Um, I, I, I don't know the thing that was that ain't right, but it was, I guess more from the, uh, the more from the novel, from the story as it was <laughs> written. Yeah. Um, it was when he's talking about um, what he's going to do to the toy maker's mother. Oh yeah, he, my God. It's, <laughs> it's the toy maker's mother who he uh, deducts is the person who sent the package for the little, little army men. Um, Indeed. Just because of the handwriting he matched to the handwriting that he saw when he was doing the hit. And so he, it doesn't, it doesn't clear up in the story how exactly she did it. Maybe she's a witch and she bewitched the toys and that's how she gives the toy maker uh, his ideas that was what i thought yeah. it was put together but uh yeah that's interesting. So he says he says he wants to fly to miami and uh put a flamethrower and burn her face off i'm like oh my god <laughs> dude this guy, this guy is mad yeah, so yeah. so mad matt you started to say something what were you gonna say uh i was saying uh i think i did appreciate the ending of the story a little more than the uh, screen adaptation just because uh uh, it was a little more overdone in the story where the whole ele- elevator shaft blows up. And in the story, I feel like it's just like, there's just like this bright light in his apartment and then, and then that's it, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. you know, that it was this, this little thermal nuke that went off in his apartment and, and destroyed everything. But on the outside, it looked like, you know, nothing. So yeah. looks like somebody like popped a fuse in their apartment or something like that. Exactly. People, exactly. people down on the ground are like, Oh, somebody's light went out. That must be inconvenient. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, had, they had a few uh, a few suggestions that it wasn't a good neighborhood on the ground, even though up yeah. forty street forty stories up, it's, yeah. it's, a little, it's a little bit better off, and he doesn't have to deal with whoever's down on the ground. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and then when when, it, when his shirt full of bloody bullet holes <laughs> like flutters down to the ground, and they see it, it's like maybe we shouldn't hang around, but we'll call the police later. So let's get out of this bad neighborhood. <laughs> that's right. No, that's absolutely right. That's right. Um, any more notes on that ain't right before we pivot out of this? No? Nope. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, that has been the part of the show where we talk about things that aren't just wrong but might be said. That ain't right. That sure as hell ain't right. So, as 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 we've all kind of observed, and I don't know if I'm reaching here, but as we've all kind of observed, uh, this is a pretty this is a pretty fast story. It's a pretty fast story, it's pretty direct. Um you know, toy soldier revenge thing, army men revenge. Something was percolating in the in the, in the undertone of this because obviously, I I had growing up, I had those little army figurines, I had all those little green guys. Um, I also had GI Joe growing up, like all the little you know yeah. toy GI Joe things, and it got me it got me thinking about and and maybe there's something here, maybe it's just interesting to ponder but i would genuinely be curious your thoughts on this um where it's like it it got me thinking about sometimes our fascination when we're kids to a degree that particularly boys get marketed to violence as play and that's what that's what kind of percolated in 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 my imagination for this it's just the the ways in which whether it be a proclivity cultural valid or otherwise a proclivity that people have of like oh yeah boys just like to play rough boys just like to play violently you know um because it's not just with things like you know 
little green army soldiers or or GI Joes, but you know, if there is a violent natured, violent themed toy, it is primarily going to be marketed to boys. You know, uh, maybe not quite so uniformly these days, um, culture evolving the way it has. But for the most part, you know, when I was growing up, it was pretty much like, yeah, a boy toy could easily be like a weapon or it could be, you know, like a, a weapon that presumably was made of hard plastic and not going to hurt anybody in genuine, but, um, but still like, you know, a pretend weapon. And I've never been one who was terribly comfortable with that kind of thing outside of fantasy settings. Um, so, but I just found it interesting the way that these particular, these toys, uh, cause that's really all they are until we realize that they're alive. And I'm just fascinated by that. I don't know if either of you have, have thought about that, have, have wrestled with that at all. Um, but just this idea, this notion that they tend to, uh, at least in days past market somewhat violent things towards children and most often towards boys, uh, which is what this story kind of put me in mind of. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm throwing that out there to either of you. Any, any thoughts from you about that sort of thing? Well, I think it is interesting. Um, as a hitman, violence and killing is kind of his profession, but, uh, but his home is kind of so separate from that. Like it's clean, it's sanitary, seems like separate from that. But this, um, the way these toys come into his life kind of brings that violence that he's put out into the world um, into his safe and protected world um, mm. in, in, in the form of something harmless as a, as what you think is a toy, but uh, right, yeah, you know that's, that's kind of what struck out to me as far as the violent aspect of it. Yeah, no, I and well, and it's interesting because the the idea of you'd think it's tiny, so it can't do any damage, and yeah, eventually they get in because it's a tiny thermonuclear device, but they're doing lots of damage before that in the story and in the film like they're blowing holes in his bathroom door mm-hmm. uh it it describes at one point in the story that his face is str- i mean this is a bit insensitive but if i it, it describes the blood on his face like war paint as if he was uh like an indian going to war because the blood was just like trickling down his face in these in these uh rivers and uh so yeah they're i mean they're they're definitely making a dent in him and could conceivably take him out uh thermonuclear device or not uh which i which i found it's it's kind of i mean haunting is not the right word but kind of how very destructive things can come in these really small packages and very destructive things can come in these little tiny seemingly dismissible i mean you could flick something away but then you know like these little army men could be stepped on he does crush and step on many of them through the course of this little battle but uh, these small little things, because of the accumulation and their persistence, take him out and mm. uh, and and destroy him, which uh, which I also found uh, really interesting, really compelling. Um, Steve, what you think? Yeah, the the book really is, puts it really clear and and how how he's a hitman and he's just doing a job and he works for a guy who gets an assignment that passes it along to him. And he doesn't even know the motive or the reason why he's doing the job. He's just given the job to uh, to murder someone. I thought that was really interesting how how that all went down. And in the in the adaptation, they they sh- they show it. It's it's, uh, it's not it's not a flashback like in the book where it doesn't yeah. even describe it. But uh, in, in 
it's really the first sequence in the adaptation that shows him approaching the toy maker. And mm. uh, who's, he, who's he played by that actor? That was uh, the toy maker. Yeah. The toy maker is played by Bruce oh, yeah. Spence. Yeah. Bruce Spence from uh, Mad Max. Uh, yeah. Two and three. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. He's got that very distinct face that like when he grins, his face you know, like crinkles up, yeah. you know, like lots of wrinkles and everything. I don't know if you noticed there was another eighties icon in here. I don't know. If, I don't know if icon is the appropriate word, but uh, the, uh, the lady on the airplane next to him is Mia Sarah from day off. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and uh legend is the legend. thing that I know her most from, from, um, yeah. she's got that very sort of, sort of uh, fawn like uh, uh, appearance to her face. That's right. Um, yeah, that, but, that I guess that scene wasn't in the book at all either, right? No, not on the plane because yeah. in the book we just find out where he's been, but we start with him like back at the apartment, and yeah. um, you know, job's done and everything. But but we pretty much spend the entirety of the story in the apartment with him having having this battle. Um, I think in the in the like the credits they called her like pretty woman on the plane or or beautiful <laughs> one on the plane, but he had no interest in her at all. <laughs> oh. No, 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 no. He's he, he's not that kind of man. No. <laughs> he's, he's just a, a single guy in a, in a lonely apartment, a hitman coming home from a job, and he just he just wants to take a shower and have a drink, and but that's all interrupted. No. <laughs> I did find it interesting that he has a rubber ducky, though. He had the rubber ducky that did not come in the package. <laughs> like it's hmm. his his rubber ducky, and I'm like, hmm, that's yeah. what, that's interesting. And he drinks Coca Cola apparently because that's what he's got his his fridge dog. It's not a beer. It's or at least I don't think it was. That was a bright red can with a little pig. I couldn't see it terribly clearly, but I'm like, that looks like a Coca Cola, uh, which I did find really like. Wow, that's yeah. that feels somewhat random. You know, what also made me think of was um, that '90s, early '90s movie Toys with Robin Williams. Oh yeah. oh yeah, and there's like, like the climax at the end has the the war toys versus all the other toys, right? Yeah, no, no, it's true. I don't. Want to, it's it's like I do wonder. Um, there's all these. I don't know. There's all these conversations these days about how we have um, either the potential to, or I, I guess it's more of a debate for hotter heads, but. Um, ways we're desensitizing ourselves to to violence or dehumanizing efforts you know like uh you know there's of course being a fan of horror i hear about it all the time of just like oh of course you watch all these horror movies it must desensitize you to violence and i've said before on the show i was like for me this this won't be the experience for everybody but for me the horror films actually intensify my sensitivity to to violence because when it happens in the real i uh, you know, I, I I have some real difficulties sitting still and yeah. and, and having some. Uh, I, I just can't stomach it very easily. When I know that it's all paint and makeup and you know latex and stuff like that, sure, I can watch zombies rip a human being in half, and and the camera doesn't have to cut away, and I'm fine. My wife will have on you know sometimes the most benign little true crime thing, and I'm hearing somebody oh, yeah. describe what happens to somebody in the real. And I'm like, man, like I just, it, 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 it sits uncomfortably in my belly. Or if you're um, watching a war movie where it's about an actual day in history during a war, right. Uh, like, like saving private Ryan, for instance, or, or, uh, yeah. Yeah. Or platoon. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. this, this story came out in that magazine in 1972, which was 
during mm-hmm. America's involvement in the Vietnam War, and and That's the uh, quite true the locker that he that he gets is labeled Vietnam Vietnam soldiers or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, is it was it Foot Locker? <sighs> yeah, I was going to say Vietnam Foot Locker, right? Mm-hmm. Is what it, is what I think they called it. Um, and that's what the soldiers are like standing guard outside of when he gets back in from the ledge. That's how he, with his Molotov, that's how yeah. he intends to, those are, those are the guys he wants to take out first to get out the door. Um, I don't know why well, kids would want to play with uh, Vietnam footlocker toys during the Vietnam war. Maybe it's, if their father's <laughs> ever way at war, they can pretend they're involved or something like that. Or I know it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, but it does tend to be, it does tend to be the stereotype, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, like I don't know. Did you get? Did you guys play with that growing up, Matt? Did you ever play with that when you were a kid? Um, as far as like the army men and everything, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, had all the army men, GI Joe, yeah, had had them all definitely. Yeah, I had some green army men myself and uh, yeah. and GI <laughs> Joe, but I also had He Man and Transformers. And- Oh, that's and right. Star de- Wars I, action figures. So. I, def- I Star definitely. Star Wars is is war. So it's science no, it's, fiction war. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and you know, it's funny because here I am talking about like, and again, it just goes back to when it's real, when it's you know true, true trauma that was not invited, choreographed, state. Because my son and I watch wrestling every week, and that is literally like. You know, people coming out and for whatever reason is new that week, they're like, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to break your face off, you know, like yeah. that's and, you know, and they're but I, you know, I know and, and, and my son knows as well, like they are they are there trying to do these things to one another, but in a way that they both walk home, <laughs> you know, that they both get the opportunity to leave on their own two feet uh, in the ring. So again, it's, it's, um, it's fantasized violence. It's, it's a, it's a choreographed violence. And, um, and it just, it's still, it still fascinates me to this day. Like our, our cultural relationship with violence continues to interest and fascinate me in ways that sometimes I'm not totally comfortable with. And sometimes I'm, you know, kind of just write it off as something that's like, okay, well, this is just, this is just how it is, or this is, you know, this is just what it's like, but I've never been framed as the type of guy who would be like, okay, well, I'm going to draw blood. I'm going to, I'm going to seek compensation back for wrongs done to me or for, you know, for things that are, um, you know, travesties that have been, uh, foist upon me. I've just never, never been framed that way. It's, I, I might've had the desire for people to see a comeuppance of sorts or for some kind of acknowledgement or a, or a level setting as it were, but I've never had it in me to want to like, you know, be violent back to people who had done me wrong. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'm unique at that. Either of you guys ever, you know, like uh, think about those kind of things, either culturally speaking or individually or personally speaking. No, I think personally in real life, I'm kind of a pacifist myself as well. So <laughs> I don't uh, want to do yeah. violence to people. Yeah. But man, I really am curious to hear your perspective as well. Yeah. Cause you've, you've, you've seen, you know, you've, you've got brothers in arms and you've seen this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to know kind of, you know, how it sits in your imagination and your heart. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, the army lifestyle is not necessarily, uh, aligned with who I am as a person always. Of course. You know? Yeah. Uh, of course. Not always, right. uh, as, as bought in as, as some, um, service members, you know, and growing sure. up, I was probably, would have been voted least likely to be in the army it just wasn't really my thing and just kind of 
happenstance, mm. you know, it just kind of happened yeah. and then here we are. Um, yeah. so, yeah. uh, you know, some of it, um, it's just, uh, there's, you know, separation sometimes about, um, what the job requires versus, uh, you know, who I am and yeah, yeah. But, uh, definitely, um, looking forward to being on the other side of it and, and kind of, uh, uh, not having that part of my life, you know, my job being what it is currently. So, yeah, no, I, I can, I can completely at least resonate with there's things that you, uh, what I can resonate with. Cause I don't come from a military background. I don't, um, have actually very much family that's in the military. You know, my, my father as well, very, very much framed the same way of just like he was just a, a preacher and an eyeglasses maker. That was largely his his, his career as it was. Um, but what I can resonate with is is the the idea of of mission of of something that is um, you know need that must be met and it must be met by you know a, a team of people who. They require a significant amount of discipline and require uh, a significant amount of, I, I keep resisting using this word, but I guess I'll use it right here, but uh, like a sense of brotherhood where there's there's got to be a trust, there's got to be a, a kind of a bond in the middle of it. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting to me because I feel like, so I feel like sometimes we culturally speak, I'm, I'm not talking about we three here. And I'm not even talking about very much like, you know, necessarily my friends or, or, or people that I work with or that I know, but I just feel like culturally speaking, there is a subset of thought that says like, okay, this Renshaw guy, I'm going to use the language of the story, but like this Renshaw guy is a bad dude, needs to be taken out. So there's this um, hip, hip, hooray kindofness to, okay, well, we're going to, you know, send we're going to press the red button and send all the b- battalion against him, uh, you know, with the very fury of tiny hell, <laughs> we're just going to send him, you know, send it all towards him. Um, and what I find troubling uh, is the times in my own, my, my wife and I were recently talking about this, where she said, like, she admitted, she was like, Reed, you're a very gracious person, but you have to be, you have to admit like you hold grudges. I was like, I don't, I don't hold grudges. And then she proceeded to point out like six people who I still, uh, I'm just like, <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh, oh okay. It's <laughs> like, you know, maybe, maybe I do, maybe this is something that I need to, to pray about and think about, or it's just like, I have difficulties. What, what I have uh, in my heart is a proclivity to not necessarily want to see them come to any harm, but I do want to see them like, out of my life, you know, where it's just like, okay, there, there's, there's been some pain that's been brought. There's been some distress that's been brought. And so while sincerely, I, I, I want them to be healthy and well, just over there, <laughs> like, yeah. can, you, can you be over there, you know? And, um, and I find it troubling in my own heart when I reach a place where I'm close to, oh man, that person is a, is a jerk or that person's really making me mad or they're doing some things that are really frustrating me. And you and I get that sense in my heart. I'm going to call it violence, even though visually speaking, that's not necessarily what it is. But it, but it's kind of like a um, a violent attitude begins to rise up in me. Um, that always you know makes me feel a little uncomfortable because it it indicates to me that there's still parts of myself that are foreign to me or unknown to me. Maybe things that are in my heart and mind that I'm not necessarily uh, 
willing to admit that I'm capable of, or at least willing to admit that I'm that that dance around in my imagination. Um, and and I find it, uh, like I said, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself now, but I find it uh, disconcerting and troubling the way we can sometimes, culturally speaking, just applaud hip hip hooray when there's this big, you know, sort of violent retribution, as it were. We talked mm. about in our episode about the Northmen, how I've, I've, I've never sat very comfortably with revenge stories, you know, even things like even very well-made movies, things like, um, hmm. you know, the first one that comes to mind is like Braveheart, which I think is, is a really, really well-made movie, but you know, uh, then that's got a little bit more of a fighting for freedom kind of idea in it. But, you know, movies where a guy is like, Oh, I'm going to get them back for what they've taken from me. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to barrel up all the guns. I'm going to lock and load all the knives and, or, you know, like whatever it is. And, um, and that just, uh, like John Wick. Yeah. See, I thought about this. (laughs) I thought about this with John Wick because like, which uh, interesting, another hitman, like, like in battleground, but I thought about it in John Wick because John Wick, the first one is definitely a revenge story. And interestingly enough, like I saw it and I was like, yeah, that was cool. I liked John Wick, (laughs) but then like it was two and three that I liked more significantly more and number one, they amp up everything in the John wick movies. But I also think I liked him a little bit more because those he's on the run. He's just, he's just trying to survive. He's no longer trying to transact revenge. He's gotten revenge Mm -hmm. of his dog. So in two and three, he's just dealing with the ramifications of them paying back him for the people he took out in the first one. Uh, Um, And um, I don't know, there's something, this may be my final word on that particular subject, but, I encountered early, early in my life, the phrase that was like, okay, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. I know it's a cheap kind of bumper stickery kind of phrase. I don't mean to be diminutive when I say that, but I encountered that early and somewhere in my mind, it did stick out of like, okay, if I repay, you know, unkindness, or if I repay uh, a wrong done to me with another equivalent wrong, all it will do is just continue to perpetuate that cycle. Then now they're going to be mad at me. And so you're going to want to get back at me. And then I'm going to want to get back at them and then back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And um, whether it be, you know, I've just never really been very much engaged in these kind of things, whether it be actual versions of violence, verbal, physical, or otherwise, or emotional violence, um, whatever it is, I'm just, I'm always really, uh, yeah, it just always sits kind of uncomfortably with me, which is ironic given some of the nasty junk that I watch in these horror <laughs> movies. And genuinely, yeah. genuinely. But you wonder how vengeful the the toy maker's mother really was. Did she send another one of these lockers to uh, the, the, the hitman's boss? Ooh, or the, the actual person organiz- paid for the organization it. that hired the boss to hire the hitman? The person yeah. who really had a, a grudge? Or... Yeah, it's possible. Well, I mean, yeah, because I mean, if her son was taken out, She's, you know, she, she's got, uh, vengeance on two day shipping. I mean, like it's, it's there, you know, like she, she's gonna, she's gonna bring the thunder to it. So yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably true. Um, this is, uh, it's definitely one of the stories where, um, one individual treats these matters of life and death as like cold blooded. It's a job hitman. I'm going to do it. That's it. It's done. Whereas, you know, and, and who knows why the toy maker was a hit? Was it a personal thing? Was it the, a, a professional thing? You know, there's no way to know, and he doesn't care what the motivation is. Um, but when it comes down to it, these kind of matters aren't 
cold and and a professional it's it's personal you know and that's what yeah, um, yeah. that's that violence that's brought into his life to kind of show like uh you know if you're dealing death uh on a daily basis like eventually that's going to come back and, and catch up to you you can't just you know separate it so much from from life and everything so that's what yeah. it felt like. it all, all depends on what what kind of weapons of violence come into the hands of someone who has a revenge grudge Mm. It right. becomes it becomes very lethal and very painful then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, and even and, and you know, not to harp on it, but yeah. the I, I think it's significant, though I think Stephen King probably wrote this story just because he thought it was a fun idea. Um, but I do think it's significant that it's it's like tiny death. It's it's a bunch of it's it's like these small little things. I think we have a tendency to automatically know that the big grand gestures of payback are not appropriate, mm -hmm. but somehow we feel that the little tiny ones are, <laughs> and that like the, the little minuscule things that, that that's somehow appropriate an appropriate response to that sort of thing, even though it's its own version of death. I don't know. I find. Yeah. The phrase is uh, death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. That it's like we feel like, oh no, it's just a bunch of little tiny cuts, but yeah. that's it. It 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 slowly whittles away at you and 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 you know takes you out. Matt, I, I feel like you keep wanting to say something, and then I keep cutting you off. Oh no, no, I got nothing. That uh, I think that pretty much sums it up for me. I mean, uh, pretty straightforward story, kind of fun on the surface, um, but uh, but there's definitely some some deeper things going on that kind of resonates on some some deeper ideas. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, you got anything else to, to, about this story, uh, either the adaptation or the story itself? Uh, not really. Um, just wanted to uh, do a little continuity correction for you. That you said mm. you said it was late nineties, but it's actually two thousand six that the adaptation was it? came out. Yeah. yeah. So here's here's what's funny <laughs> is I remembered watching it. Um, I felt like I watched it younger, and it's funny because I started to say early two thousands, and I was like, no, maybe it was. Maybe it was late nineties. Most of that Stephen King boom was in that late nineties thing. But no, that that's no, I appreciate the correction yeah. there because And the whole series aired during that summer of two thousand of two thousand six. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Boy, I tell you, it used to be event television where like there would be some new Stephen King adaptation or something that was coming to television. Yeah. I always used to get so <laughs> excited when that kind of stuff would happen. Um no, it's it's great. I feel like we don't get that as much anymore because now things like that don't come to TV, they come to Netflix or they'll come to, you know, Hulu or something. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting story in terms of just I, 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 I there's not a lot of heaviness to it. There's not a lot of uh, of profound depth. It's you know, it's popcorn. It's it's got a humor to it. It's it's kind of fun. I, I did think it was funny that like they write under the bathroom door like <laughs> surrender and then of course <laughs> this is 1972 talking right he writes back nuts, nuts. <laughs> then in the adaptation it was screw you screw yeah you, exactly because you know? <laughs> nobody's gonna write back nuts what is that the, the early 1970s version of surrender these you know like, what, <laughs> yeah. is like, what is that oh man but um but yeah it, it, it despite you know it's it's very popcorn sort of sort of superficial kind of tone it did leave me thinking about you know so many of the things that we've talked about about our relationship with violence the the pitching of violence to you know toy in toys to children sometimes and then uh probably most um 
productively in my mind is the way that uh, I can sometimes find myself justifying those thousand cuts ideas of like, oh, I'll make this snide remark. I'll make, you know, this, this jab, this joke, this thing like that. When, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of us feel like I'll end on this. I feel like a lot of us sometimes feel like what? I mean, it was just one sarcastic remark. I'm having a bad day. It's no big deal. Um, but probably not realizing that like, okay, well, we've just been the, the, the one helicopter uh, and and that person that we've said that to might be facing an entire barrage of different things coming from different places, all these little tiny things. Um, and we may not be realizing actually how substantively we're contributing to that thousand cuts idea by just, we think it's just one cut, but we, we, we're not paying attention to realizing like, oh no, but that person is being assaulted and bombarded, you know. If, if that tiny cut uh, happens to sever your Achilles tendon, then you're you're in trouble. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You ain't yeah. walking out of that elevator. You ain't. I mean, it's it's not happening. Um, but. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's that's that's what these segments kind of are. It's just an opportunity to kind of uh, talk in a more insulated fashion. And 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 Matt and Steve, thank you so much for being here uh, with me for it. So um, thank you again, Matt. Thank you again, Steve. Listeners, we'll see you next week. All right. Riri, you made it. <laughs> you made it out of the battlegrounds, but dude, you look, you don't look good. Thanks, man. Thanks for that pep talk. Pepto talk. I'm, yeah. That, that's <laughs> what I'm here for. Are you, yeah. um, you ready to call it a night? I think a, um, I think a fuse blew in one of the rooms upstairs. Mm. Also, not a euphemism. No, not a use. No, it's always a losing battle around here. Yeah. Uh huh. And yet, losing battle though it may be, it is never friend of friends, hetero life mate. It is never the end of the conversation. Aww, I hear that. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. But uh, well, why don't then we uh, fear nothing else and be on our way, rejoicing while we do. Oh, one way or another, this is a surprisingly sweet ending to a very, very <laughs> different kind. A very of special episode. fear of God. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> All right, I'll clock next out. week. Next week. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media, essays, and episode archive merchandise and more. If you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast. There you'll unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online event access, and so much more. We want to issue a special thanks to Jacob Hunt of tracermatula.com for our artwork, also to our assortment of talented musicians, including Andrew Nelson, The Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes, and also to Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music. Special thanks also to Tyler Smith at morethanonelesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.